Uh, Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's always good to be with you. I appreciate that, and I want to thank you. I want to thank you publicly. Rumor had it that I was in Brooklyn last Saturday night. Obviously, you didn't believe it, but you came on down to the kitchen click for Saturday Night Seagull just to do your own investigation. So thank you very much. Yeah, well, first of all, you can't believe rumors, you know, that circulate in the neighborhood. <laughs> and, uh, I wanted to see if they really gave you a visa to come. <laughs> well, I made it to Brooklyn. It was a lot of fun, and I was honored, as was everybody there, that you came by, and I thank you for that. All right, Friday morning, it's the weekly update time. We have not spoken about events uh, uh, in depth in the last two weeks, so there's plenty to talk about. We now have March the 17th designated as the day for the new election. Uh, one of the things we spoke about this week is that it's not 100%, or at least on Wednesday, it was not 100% official yet. Is it in fact 100% official now, or there's still a couple of, you know, steps that need to be taken to make, uh, to make March the 17th a 100% election day in Israel? No, the date is set. It's, uh, it's determined by the Speaker of the Knesset convenes the leaders of the major parties, and then they agree on it. There was a dispute within the groups, and Netanyahu's uh, part, the representatives, wanted it a week earlier. Uh, other parties wanted it later, and so this was the compromise date. Well, besides the JM and the AM annual fundraiser, what else was on the calendar that they were worried about interfering with? Maybe Purim, I don't know. But, oh, it could uh, be, Taka, you're right. No, because they felt it's a Purim spiel, too. And, you know, <laughs> Unless you're but, right. I think Purim's at the end of the week, and if they would have done it that earlier date, it would have been literally the Tuesday after Purim. You may be right, by the way. But that, that is, Actually, you know, Pesach is a, usually a consideration because right. the country closed down and people can't campaign right before and they're busy. And, and But I'm being serious. Yeah, I know. They take the Jewish calendar very much into consideration. But it's also, uh, the, and Netanyahu wanted the election as soon as possible, I guess, because it obviously gives him an advantage. Right. But uh, I think more than that, you know, the country won't have a budget. And you can't function very long uh, without one. You can, the government actually is the strongest government. You can't have a no-confidence vote because the Knesset is suspended. Everything else is suspended. And uh, while the media... We'll be going around telling all the stories. The fact is that the people themselves are going to be relatively quiet, mm-hmm. relatively uh, isolated from the uh, impacting the issues, critical issues. And the law in Israel is that if you don't have a, a, a budget within three months, you have to have the election. It was clear that they were not going to get an agreement. Then there was, of course, the talk about a putsch and, uh, and right. other things, and, and then subsequent reports indicated that uh, Lapid did, in fact, send representatives to speak to some of the parties. But this was headed in this direction, and some say it was dysfunctional from the beginning, that it was, uh, um, you know, the frictions were there all along between the various parties, and that you had too, too broad a right. uh, coalition. But it's the nature of Israeli politics, and I'm not sure yet that we see emerging something that will be dramatically different, although you have a new elements like Kahalon running, right. and also there's a 3.25 now percent threshold. That's larger than usual. Higher, right. right. And and therefore, let's say the Arab parties are going to have to unite so that they don't lose their, and, and if you don't reach the threshold, the people who voted for you, the votes are lost. Right. 
Uh, they get that, redistributed, so to speak. Right, so, and that also eliminates people running, you know, two party, two delegate parties, and things right. are going the, to be much more reluctant. Th- this might be just, you know, party politics. I don't, I don't mean party as in political party. I mean parties because that's the way they vote in Israel. So that may be the simple answer. But how do you reconcile the following two things? Today's Jerusalem Post poll: sixty percent do not favor Netanyahu and do not want him as prime minister. On the other end, if you take a poll of, you know, likelihood of who will be the next prime minister, it would be Bibi Netanyahu. Is that simply because Likud will still garner, you know, such a large percentage of the votes? Uh, well, it's, there's, first of all, in Israeli politics, nothing's a contradiction. <laughs> it can all exist right. together. You know, they always say that Israelis are the only people who tell the truth to pollsters and then lie at the polls right. so that they're notoriously... Uh, unpredictable but the, the in this case uh, i think it is that netanyahu has lost popularity i think during the course of the campaign uh it, it will improve people re-examine they look at the candidates they they um so while 60 percent or whatever the number is 69 60 percent i think they said right uh, would not support it yeah. uh, but the fact is when they look at who else they don't find another alternative so that they may vote for him regardless or vote for the Likud list. Again, that's why I think Kahalon's coming in could be right. uh, make a big difference. You know, a couple of weeks ago, you already indicated that it looked like we were heading to new elections. And I, I think you were sort of 50-50, but, you know, as an insider that you are, you probably were, you know, you felt it was more likely. Is there any benefit to it? We know all the negatives, and, and you have said on this program so many times, you know, how, how you know what, what the bad part is that Israel goes to new elections. Is there any positive at all? That new elections are called now, and then there'll be three and a half months of campaigning. Uh, it, it's very expensive. It's very. Uh, it takes a heavy toll on the internal enmity within this society, amity within the society. The you know the pits uh, even within families, who, who, people who who have different uh, party affiliations. But I do think that the current situation was deteriorating and was making it difficult to get things done. Right. Second, uh, that's why Caroline Glick says that it's worth the investment of whatever money it costs for the election. Yeah, so I don't right. think that the money is the issue. Right. It actually came out that Stanley Fisher, when he was governor of the bank, bought dollars, and with the uh, increase in the price of the dollar, ten ten percent, you know, to the shekel. They actually made about seven billion dollars in 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 their reserves, so he, they have money to spend. Boy, uh, <laughs> does what does Warren Buffett admire him? I mean, like, this guy's like unbelievable. <laughs> he, he did a great job, and he's now, as you know, the, the deputy head here in the United States. Right. So, uh, you know, the government right now is, is, as I said, the most powerful government that Israel can have, and they can do things, even though they are reluctant because. It looks like they're doing it without, you know, they are doing it without parliamentary approval. Uh, and maybe this, you know, the system needs to be shaken up. It probably needs to be reformed. I think that the coalition system hampers them. It is the ultimate democracy by giving people, you know, the multiple choices. Right. But uh, the, the, the coalition deals, the constant bickering, certainly is not helpful. Is Yesh Atid now without an Atid? Is is this the end of the party, or is it you know going to uh, sort of go to the waste bin of history with, I don't know, two or three or four seats this time around? What do you think of Yair Lapid and his future? 
uh, he, he will run. He probably, in the polls, I think he's getting between six. Some polls say eight, nine seats. I don't think that's correct. I, don't, I think that people are very disappointed in him. They, they had great expectations, young, coming in there, a breath of fresh air. And, in fact, uh, and, and Netanyahu gave him the Ministry of Finance, which is one of the three top posts. Uh, the feeling is that he really didn't, didn't have the experience or the knowledge on, on the part of some and others who feel that he was hampered by the coalition. Uh, we'll have to see. But uh, I, I wouldn't write him off of Israeli politics. I don't think he'll be the factor. Bennett obviously increases significantly. Right. Uh, and Kahlan may take from him, may take from Likud. We'll have to see. Uh, I think the Likud is going to have to run to the right. Uh, the the uh, merits looks like it gains a couple seats because it picks up the left vote. And I think Livni... Oh, meaning Yeshatid's fall off from the left side, you mean? From the left, right. and also Labor. Right. Would be, um, uh, if uh, Livni goes with uh, Labor, as I think she she will, they pick up, uh, some polls even have him at 20, or make him the biggest party. But that has been, people should not be diverted by that, because you see uh, Bennett, some polls, and others... It's too fluid to make any kind of judgment like mm. that. Is Cachlone popular? And I guess he's the Bennett slash Lapid of this election, right? If those two were the wild cards or the you know the the, the exactly. interesting ones to watch, he would be the interesting one to watch this time. Does he have enough to to get any significant number of mandates? Well, first of all, it depends who he's able to attract. Does he pick up uh, a Mofaz? Does Gideon Tsar mm. come back? The former minister of education, minister of uh, deputy prime minister, and was minister of interior. And all indications I, are that he wants back go. in, right? And not all, but I, right. I had uh, I met with him when he was here in New York, and I had the occasion to discuss, you know, his plans. He, he did not intend to come back now to politics, but the situation. And if <laughs> there's a vacuum uh, perceived, then I think it's a good chance he will he will come back. He is very popular. He didn't intend to come back in until he heard there was an election. <laughs> no. well, he knew there was, they, they all anticipated that an election would take place. But, you know, the average Israeli government lasts two and a half years. So this is shorter, right? Shorter. This is one of the shortest governments. Uh, it's a little, just about two years. Right. Uh, but everybody anticipated there would be an election 2015 at some point. Do you fear that three and a half months of campaigning, I don't know, it, it has the potential to escalate, God forbid, security concerns in Israel? We know what's going on. We heard about Malay Adamim this week, Yudan Shamron. We, we, I mean, we, we spoke about the massacre in Harnof at, at length the last time we spoke. We know the situation and what is happening in, in too many areas and too many isolated incidents. Um, do you fear that this atmosphere in Israel can make that even more heated, or it's really irrelevant? It doesn't matter what the political situation is in Israel. The intelligence and the security is what it is. No, I do think it's relevant in the sense that, you know, candidates tend to make statements, um, give their projections or project their views and policies, uh, some of which will deal with the security situation, some will deal with the, um, the tensions that you, you mentioned and the rise in, in incidents, which, uh, you know, has taken at least psychologically uh, heavy toll mm -hmm. and physically a significant one uh, but it, it, the more uh, the more i think is on people's attitude people's concerns that may benefit the parties on the right uh, people can't go around living in fear and the fact is that it's very isolated and those who are planning trips should not be deterred this is 
not something that that uh, people are subjected to generally. These are isolated incidents. They do not appear to be part of an organized effort. There's no indication that an intifada is about to break out uh, or will break out. So, uh, Frank, frankly, if it would, you'd think it would have already at this point, right? Yes, and it, it you know there is there has been the terrorism. You see that it's down. You don't see the same number of attacks on the the like railroad or on the streets. They do continue, and there are new laws and new policies that have been implemented to to cut back on these uh, activities. They have policemen coming in from outside areas uh, to Jerusalem, so uh, it's a, it's calmed down. But uh, yes, I do think an election tends to. Uh, uh, get candidates to uh, utilize rhetoric that they might otherwise not use. Yeah, simple as that. Um, Malcolm Holmline with us, weekly update Friday morning. It's JM in the AM. Um, there's th- Everyone wonders what will happen, and, and we have to talk about November 24th. The deadline came and went, as you predicted, of course. I don't even know if there is a new deadline, by the way, when it comes to Iran at this point. Um, we'll get to that coming up. But everyone wonders what the leader of Israel, whoever it may be, is going to do as the U.S. and other powers around this world continue to ignore Iran. I know it's not complete ignoring, but you get my point. They, they continue to allow them to enrich, to build, and, and we know where they're heading. Uh, is that going to be a major factor, that they still want Bibi, you know, with the potential, with his you know, commitment to go get Iran if necessary? Is that going to be a major factor in this election? Iran will be a, a significant concern, but I think the election will be primarily domestic. It will be on social issues, the economy, uh, which has turned down, and, and people, even though the numbers are still very strong, but people don't feel that. They feel that prices have been inflated and that uh, for food basics, um, income not matching it. So I think it, the domestic issues like here will be the dominant issues. But that doesn't demean or diminish the concern about Iran. We've had a, a lot of stories in the last week uh, that should be of concern, and especially Khamenei uh, telling the armed forces to, to build up their um, capacities. And this is, he said, don't worry about the negotiations and diplomacy. <laughs> they have a lot of new innovations that they are introducing. They're making statements every day, some of it true, some of it not. But more importantly is his declaration about annihilating Israel and, and, and other statements coming from top leaders in Iran that we will deal with the crusaders in Rome, meaning the Christians, the Jews in in, in uh, Jerusalem, and the, and even Mecca and Medina, which they want to liberate from the Sunnis. But that's why I say that there is a possibility that the Knesset will be led by somebody who is not as strong on this issue as Bibi Netanyahu, who we always think, I think everyone always thinks in the back of their mind, that if it comes down to it, he would make sure Israel takes care of whatever needs to be taken care of themselves. Uh, we have to come to the realization that the next leader of Israel, if it's not him, could have a completely different attitude. It may not be as quick to act against Iran. First of all, Iran is a consensus issue in Israel. It's overwhelming. No matter who the leader is. No matter who. And uh, as you know, different leaders obviously take different different approaches to it, but nobody in, in Israel, no leader in Israel, no rational leader in Israel, dismisses um, the uh, what has happened. They look at, at the, now the announcement this week about the Sudan that they've signed this new defense and security pact with Sudan. They admit that they got new missiles that they that Qatar paid for, that they shipped to Libya, to the, to the rebels in Libya, to elsewhere. They are a major transfer point, but 
they have a full battalion of the IRGC there. This is their own announcements. I mean, these are official announcements right. that got no attention again. And the is it as significant, I think, as what we saw in instance in, in Yemen, which here we talked about for months, and the world just woke up to it mm-hmm. when it was too late. This is there's a joint military and security committee. They they are involved in building air bases, air defense systems, other things, which worries Egypt uh, as well. At the same time, they're running to be vice chair of the committee on accreditation, which Israel seems to be alone in fighting at the United Nations. Meaning Yemen wants to be vice chair? No, uh, uh, Iran. Oh, Iran. And, you know, they said it's like Al Capone wanting right. to be head of the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> and the head of, former head of the CIA, Michael Hayden, a very thoughtful guy, said that absent an invasive system, a regime that really gives them freedom to visit all the sites, which go back, goes back to your comment about the failure of the agreements and, and the situation as it is. It is not intrusive. It is not comprehensive. They say that they allowed him, but in fact, we know that, that Iran has not allowed the IEA to visit a lot of the sites, especially the weaponization and others, that the past military development, they call it the PMD, which has become common use, and nobody knows what it stands for, uh, uh, it tells us that they, they have, and unless you know that, you can't tell where they're at or what to look for in the future. We don't know about the hidden sites. And he said that U.S. intelligence can't provide uh, a, a, a adequate warning of the major developments, what we, they call the breakout period, meaning that the United States is seeking no longer to dismantle the entire process, but to contain it and to get a, a year breakout. Well, a year breakout, many people say, is not a, a real goal, and it's not practical in, in these uh, in these circumstances. And, and the... Um, the uh, Ali Heinen, who used to head, be head of the IEA, said that they have a fivefold in, increased their uh, nuclear threat. And I can go through the numbers and statistics. We don't have to. It is not that they didn't get any agreements and that there isn't some good in what they said about closing Ford Oak or, or taking the um, plutonium plant and, re- and revising it. But others say revising it is not enough because it can be reversible. Too many of these things are reversible. They say so. The sanctions are reversible, that they will click back. That is not the way I think it works. So there is a lot of concern. And I think even on the part of the negotiators, and I was in Washington this week, met with some of them about uh, what really, uh, uh, where they're at right now. And then the pressure you see at the United Nations is not about Iran, but calling on Israel to renounce its uh, nuclear uh, weapons. Uh, yeah, isn't that an annual tradition, by the way, at the U.N.? Yeah. Right, or or sem- it's Egypt that, that leads it, but, right. it, uh, it, yeah, it's an annual ritual. Maybe, maybe semi-annual. I don't want to ruin it. An annual ritual that they, yeah. well, that's only meets, uh, Yuli, that they, uh, that they have this meeting, uh, that they... they uh, demand that Israel... They demand Israel each time uh, give in. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios here in Jersey City, New Jersey. Welcome to everybody tuned in on the NSN app around the world. Number of people listening uh, through that venue seems to increase every week, and I thank you. Um, two things before we get back to the deadline, which I'm going to ask you about. 
Number one, th- does the U.S. now realize that the peace process, whatever it is and whatever you, you know, it, however we regard it at this point, is now suspended for three and a half months or not necessarily so? Well, there was none really underway, and uh, I think that the paralysis on the Palestinian side uh, was evident all along. This, obviously, there, there can't be really serious negotiations when you don't have the cabinet, when everybody will be focused on elections and campaigning. But it doesn't mean that discussions can't go on, and there were efforts underway. The United States hadn't stopped uh, trying to, to push the parties into to some sort of talks. But right now, I think the general sense is, and you hear that across the parties, that, that Abbas is not a partner and Abbas is, is not capable. Some who say, look, he's the best you're going to get. You've got to deal with him now. Right. They, they look at the, the Hamas saying that they're rethinking the relationship. They said they broke the agreement. They didn't renew the agreement. It's very unclear, and they, will, they like the ambiguity. That's how Abbas has always worked. And so he has deniability on the, on the one hand. Um, and, you know, you see that Hamas moved its headquarters to Turkey, and Israel's gone to NATO in the last week to, to try to get them to take some action to force uh, Turkey to act against uh, Al-Arui, who's the, and, and, uh, who himself was responsible for a dozen of it, dozens of attacks. Has Turkey expressed any interest in doing that? No. They're not, they don't want to intervene? Or... Well, they're not. They support him. Right, they, exactly. Uh, that, you can't depend is... on Turkey anymore, right? You cannot depend on Turkey uh, at all. Mm. But you see that, and also that the uh, incitement about Al-Aqsa is continuing, and now they've gone online to do this, and, and yeah. that can drive anybody anywhere. That's why I... I, I acts of violence. That's why the PA-Hamas proposed split at this point is so strange. PA is acting so much like Hamas now. Yeah, but it's not about that. First of all, they, they, they threaten each other, you know, they, they try to blow up. They blew up uh, several houses in Gaza of Fatah officials. The tensions between them has to do with financing, paying each other's uh, staff. It, it's not about the, those issues. Right. There, they agree, but uh, on on everything else, uh, they don't. But again, right. the, the rhetoric and the the sermons uh, recorded at Aqsa and uh, elsewhere are are continued to. Yeah, and don't expect that. And don't expect what the results of that rhetoric to dissipate quickly. That lasts for generations, as we know. It lasts. Um, I'm sure you're in touch with European leaders and European Jewish leaders, especially in light of this attack in France, which horrified everybody, and there's so many other attacks that you're familiar with because you get these communiques regularly. So, number one, what do these European Jewish leaders tell you about their, you know, about Jewish life now in cities like Paris and beyond? And do you think Sharansky's prediction that during this school year, the one we're in right now, 1% of French Jews will move to Israel. Is it possible that that number is now going to come true? I do think the 1% is definitely possible. I th- but that remember, that's 6,000 Jews, right. and uh, we already are, are close to that number. And the uh, you know there had been an increased immigration. Some of the people, the immigration buy apartments, uh, their families are there in Israel, and the breadwinners still go to Paris. Some have now dual residences. Um, but I do think that the population that is becoming more and more arrested of the attack, the rape of a woman this week, a 19-year-old, and telling her it's because you were a Jew, and has really shook up the community. I spoke to them that day, and it was, I mean, really went to the core. Mm. Uh, and as it should, there has been a slow awakening. As you know, I, I did an annual debate with the leaders of the French Jewish community, and for years I said 
look, the demographics are such, it's clear you got to get out. You have to plan for it. There's no way. It's, it's not even something based on violence. It's, it's much broader than that. But when you speak to leaders there, it's not now just... Now it's changed a lot. It's, it's not just about well, the attitude, right? Not, it's not just about Aliyah, though. You, you also are concerned about their own safety concerns. I mean, I, I guess they're doing everything they can at this point, right, in terms of Jewish institutions and trying to protect their own in the community. They are very much oriented towards that but and look to the government. The government has made uh, strong statements. The police chief made a very strong statement that day. But the problem is you don't see it on the ground. And, unless, and, and even if you did... I don't think that the demographic uh, differences, I think some of the other factors that are at play, we see the radicalization of communities, you see the, the huge number of French guys fighting in, in Syria who will be coming back, the, the, the individual or collective threats that exist. I, I just don't see how that situation can go anywhere but down. And, and you hear it from leaders now. The same people who debated me and who, you know, were insulted by my assertions. Yep. And it's not, but 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 it's worse in other countries: Belgium, Scandinavia, the, the number of assaults. But and here as well. Unbelievable. Yeah, here as well is right. We should remind everybody about that. I know I'm bouncing around, but hey, that means that there's been a lot this week. Uh, so back to the deadline now for a moment. I started this that segment by saying November 24th passed and, you know, passed us by, etc. Is, is there a new deadline now? Like, is, is there a new date that's been circled or the United States hasn't even bothered with that at this point? No, there's two dates. One is uh, four months uh, in March, which is uh, where they're supposed to be presenting the framework agreement and then the details hammered out. I think more technical parts uh, by uh, seven months, and then um, I guess that's by July. Right. Uh, they have to have the plan. It can always be extended again. Yeah. It can be shorter. It can break down. The The fact is that the agreements reached till now do not seem to provide the kind of safeguards, and there are a lot of questions. There are There is progress. They show that the sanctions relief has not yielded for Iran the cash that it, uh, it was expected. You got $4.6 billion instead of $7 billion. That can be disputed, but, but the, they also did get some, uh, some concessions, but far from anything that really denies Iran the capacity and the capability to develop it. And, you know, 69% of Americans in a poll show that they oppose leaving Iran with a nuclear capability. Hmm. And the Congress overwhelmingly supportive and they want new sanctions and the new congress will for sure do it even this congress could do something on it and menendez you know has been a key leader in this uh yeah we we keep praising him the the man who doesn't get the recognition he deserves and then the and the, exactly and then the uh, others there schumer has come out others have come out lately uh, uh, recognizing the need and and expressing Concern with the uh, arrangement, uh, certainly Lindsey Graham, uh, Mark Kirk. Uh, but uh, I, I remember with the new Congress, you're going to have a much larger Republican majority. And the right. key is it's not to get a majority, it's to get 67 to override right. a veto or to avoid a veto uh, by the president of, of uh, the new sanctions. And the new sanctions would be prospective, meaning they won't go into effect now. They're just a message to Iran that if there's no deal or a bad deal, then they will come into effect. By the way, uh, you know, you can imagine how many people in this audience are from New Jersey. Uh, a good opportunity to remind everybody to call Senator Menendez and be in touch with him to give proper thanks, because, you know, especially, like I say, this audience, I mean, uh, it, it, for some reason, he's. it seems like he does all this under the radar. 
and does not get the recognition that some people in Congress, you know, like to enjoy. Well, he's not a guy who seeks headlines. Right, exactly. He's been a leader on this consistently along. Uh, together, it's, it's Menendez Kirk. As, uh, Senator Kirk from uh, Chicago also deserves it. But, but many people should be recognized, and, and people should be asking their um, representatives. There's only a week left of the session. That means they'll be all be home. Senators and congressmen meet with them, ask, invite them to synagogues and communities, ask them what they've done on this, ask them to, to tell you their positions, how much they're, what are they prepared to do when the new Congress comes in, and uh, on this and on, of course, the U.S.-Israel relationship. There is good news there that Israel, the strategic partnership was enshrined. It was voted in September unanimously by the Senate, but was voted unanimously by the House uh, this week that it involves supporting Israel as a Jewish state, talks about the, the various issues, including the stockpile being increased by $200 million in, in weapons. Uh, it affects a wide variety of areas where U.S. and Israel are in constant uh, cooperation. And we heard there were rumors, it's not saying these are facts, but of threats of sanctions against Israel, mm-hmm. which uh, supposedly leaders in the administration didn't deny when asked by reporters uh, that uh, there was a plan being developed uh, over the building in, uh, in Jerusalem. I would suggest they look at the vote in the Congress before they... They uh, allow rumors like this to get around, and let alone a reality of trying to impose sanctions. It's not where the American people are. It's not where our elected officials are. It would be the worst decision possible. And uh, I hope that uh, I, I hope that it's all rumors and, and there's no truth to it. But usually in Washington, you know, where there's smoke, there's some fire. Interesting. Some fire. Yeah, understood. By the way, uh, you mentioned the unanimous vote in Congress in Israel. The only unanimous vote is when they want to dissolve the, go- the government. <laughs> that's, that's the only thing. Well, every- that, that's not even unanimous. <laughs> I know it wasn't even unanimous. <laughs> that's the only thing everybody could agree on in Israel. Speaking of which, I didn't ask you. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are curious. Um, where does this put the religious parties in Israel? And I'm not asking this to be funny or tongue in cheek. I'm asking this seriously. Will they end up with more and better financial footing from the government of Israel if, in fact, you know the results of the March election are the way they, that we think they're going to go? It's much too early to determine. You see the splits within Shas. You see splits within some of the others. Uh, uh, and some of them already announced that they won't join the government. Uh, so it, it's much too early to determine how this how this will play out. But you know, negotiations offer opportunities right. and to to join a coalition, especially if it would be so fractured as the numbers appear to be now. Uh, they could be in a position to try and negotiate a better deal. Uh, the nationality bill. What's the status in Israel? It, it, it never went to a... frozen now. So, and which means that... And, and So what? It was the prime minister who introduced it? It was the prime minister who introduced it. Important, not important. Give me your assessment of how you view it. Uh, well, it's seen here by some people as, as detrimental. It's seen by others as positive. Uh, others see it as just a, a, an affirmation of what is already in the in the Declaration of Independence, right. declaring Israel as a Jewish state. Um, so uh, I think now getting a cooling off period to, to think about the ramifications is probably a good idea, uh, and we'll see. But, but the law itself will come back in the new Knesset, but what happens is that you have to start from where you left off. Mm. And it had uh, a reading, but it had didn't have final readings. It wasn't it's not clear that they had a, a, a overwhelming majority for it. 
So we'll see. And um, I saw the Jerusalem Post had a, an assassination attempt against the prime minister. D- does that happen more often than we know of, or was this an exception, or what? Well, there were uh, as plots against Lieberman and others. Yeah, even the prime minister, they write. And even the prime minister. And this is, you know, unfortunately, that's why he has a lot of security and why they, thank God, Israeli intelligence is what it is. They prevent many, many attacks. I just saw in Great Britain announce that, that they prevented 40 terrorist attacks since the subway, you know, the bombings in, that took place in 2005. Right. Uh, and most of the countries are devoting more and more resources as the United States. And NYPD is exemplary in that regard uh, to intelligence work and to, to trying to anticipate and prevent not having to clean up after terrorist attacks. But it's a phenomenon that, that grows wider and wider, and that's why stories like the Sudan story or, you know, the, the growth of ISIS and, and their declarations about, you know, their activities in the Arabian Peninsula and Sinai, Yemen, Libya, Algeria, that Iran can, can proclaim, you know, that they, for the first time in history, control four Arab capitals that Shiites do, uh, you know, in Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and now looking at the Sudan, the, the, the whole point of, of the, the growth of uh, Islamic State and moving east and west and, and thinking that they're mandated by uh, Allah to, to do this and uh, talking about the, the caliphate uh, and the flag flying over the various sites, people, you know, don't, don't take it seriously. These guys are really serious. They, they mean, mean business, it. Yeah. And I think the, you know, West better wake up to this reality and and take it a lot more seriously. Hegel's gone. Next um, next uh, defense secretary will be any idea? Yes, Ashton Carter. And that is who? He was an official in the Defense Department uh, till two years ago, I think, and he uh, is more of a technocrat. Um, Did we over panic on Hegel or not? <laughs> well, I think. Uh, you know, as, as people have uh, jokingly said, who would have believed that two years in we would say Hegel's the best friend of Israel in the administration? <laughs> he, he turned out to be really good, and you saw the words of the defense minister praising Hegel. Yep. And the defense and military you know, cooperation is really exemplary and continues to be, and we have to acknowledge it. A lot of Jewish time and effort was spent on him not being uh, accepted as a nominee. Well, no, but in the end, we agreed, and uh, I met with him, and um, uh, he turned out, and he, and he sought more independence, and he's the third uh, Secretary of Defense that the United States has had, and if you look at the books the other ones wrote, or what they had to say, uh, and now he seems to be echoing it, saying that it was by mutual agreement, but uh, felt that there was either too much interference, not enough consultation, whatever, uh, it's a shake-up, and, and others leaving, it's it's not unusual two years before the end of administration, after the midterm elections, that people start to look to their next job or try to you know, get lobbying positions while the government's still in place. Uh, and also there seems to be some internal, you know, maneuvering and uh, dissatisfaction that always uh, leads to people leaving, too. There's something going on, that's for sure. Uh, finally, what do you think of the, uh, the, the actual event and the symbolism of the Prime Minister's son entering the Israeli army? It shows that everybody serves, that nobody's exempt. That the, uh, and the timing after one of the roughest summers in recent history for the Israeli army. That's 
Right. So it's not easy. I, I, I feel bad for him because it you know, must not be easy being a prime minister's son in any event. But uh, especially, you know, when you go into the army and there, everybody is treated equally. He's not getting special treatment. He's a, a fine boy. I know him. I remember him since he's, I know him since he's very little. And, um, and I think that, the, you know, the fact that the nation focused on it, and um, it's a reaffirmation that this is a people's army, that the army is there to serve the people, and, and the love for the IDF I don't think is diminished at all. Uh, and I think people see the importance. When you look around Israel today and you see the dangers, uh, and we didn't even get into the story of IS and what's going on in Syria and other parts. That's right. I mean, we have such a catalog of Tsaras to, to talk about, of issues to talk about. But, uh, you know, the, the, um, the fact is also good news that uh, trade with uh, China is topping $10 billion and expected to double again. You're talking about Israeli trade. Sure, in a short while. There are many good stories. They don't get uh, the attention. Israel's involvement with Ebola, Israel's involvement in, in many other areas uh, doesn't get the attention, and we're seeing an increase in the BDS movement. And, and I just, for one moment, because people I know are skeptical about it, they don't see it, they don't. the effort on American campuses is growing every day. This, this uh, movement for the... Um, uh, for uh, Palestinian independence, it's, uh, the, the, the SPJ, I think it's called, uh, is really dangerous, and it many cases involves physical violence. This is not to be dismissed, and we're all investing heavily in it. We get great response, by the way, from Hispanic communities today. We're getting great response from. We just had an Asian American trip to Israel. We're finding more and more of the American people are ready if they're given the opportunity to learn about Israel and uh, uh, beyond the distortions and misrepresentations in the press. So our people, our community has to do more. People in their daily conversations, telling, sharing the facts, taking the information to the people. It's really critical now. We should not take it for granted, and, and especially for our kids on campus. And we provide legal service, we provide a lot of other things, but communities should reach out to students in their areas the Jewish students for Shabbos for things so they don't feel isolated and become vulnerable to cults and everything else, but also to help support them. At the, it's a really critical time, and I, this is a, a frightening movement. It's, we see it in Europe, and it's easier to look when it's distant. It's a lot harder to do it when it's closer to you. Excellent. Uh, Malcolm Holmline will uh, speak again next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Thanks for joining us. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.